You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Dave Blakey, who is running a combination of Go and Kubernetes to help deliver a load balancer service called Nova. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thanks for having me on. Excited to chat. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, my name is Dave Blakey. I'm the CEO of Snapped, which is an ADC company, really just a fancy way of saying load balancing, web acceleration and, and uh, application security. So, you know, this space is quite uh, keen and, and close to our heart. And uh, our, we're going to talk about our own app today uh, called Nova, which provides those services at large scale for kind of cloud native next gen businesses and deployments um, and how we've built that, how we've structured it uh, and how we've kind of prepared for, for scaling it out, I guess. Nice. So how long has Nova been running in production? Well, uh, the product itself is still actually in alpha. It's going to beta middle of this month, but we have quite a few production clients already, you know, in our game, load balancing alpha is pretty stable. Uh, so I think our first production client went live on the platform about four months ago. Um, and yeah, it's probably been, let's say, three months about. Okay. Is it just you developing this application or do you have a small team around it? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Uh, we've got, I suppose, two teams working on it, really. There's uh, multiple components to it, the, the kind of back end, I guess, and then the front end. Uh, but in total, there's probably about nine people working on it. Oh, wow. So that is a pretty decently sized team. Yeah. It's uh, too big to share a large pizza. <laughs> <laughs> right. Got to get two of them. Exactly. So uh, before we jumped on this call, you know, you mentioned that Golang is like a primary component of of the backend. Do you just want to go into, you know, why you happen to choose Golang and you know, like what, what parts of the language benefit your application? Absolutely. So uh, I mentioned briefly that we have these two components. Really, it's it's one system and you control it through a web interface, right? So you're doing your settings, configuring what you want to run, and then ultimately deploying that. But what's really happening in the back end uh, is that we are then shipping that configuration out to potentially uh, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of your connected devices, right? And that configuration and everything is all done through our primarily PHP-driven website. But that speaks to our Golang server uh, infrastructure, which then communicates with all of the clients, which will be running on actual clients' machines, often in Kubernetes, containers, things like that, uh, which is also a Go binary sitting there. So the the kind of reason I go into that description is because you can already see where I'm headed with tens of thousands per client of connected devices. We needed something that was very scalable, right? That all of these clients connect to one central uh, point of control being this, this Golang server um, that had to be extremely scalable, uh, do a lot of things in parallel uh, and in a very efficient way. And Go was a combination of a very good way of doing that and uh, a way for us to develop quickly, if that makes sense. So that's you'll see a lot of the choices we've made have been what is the most scalable kind of best way here that also is a very kind of agile way of getting it done. Uh, and Go really fits that that profile, in my opinion. Was there any prior experience that you had with Go that made it easier to use it? Or did you kind of just pick it based on your use cases for the app? Yeah, our, our team is uh, made up of many programming languages, I guess. You know, we, we work in a lot of different languages across 
you know the the business from front end stuff to kind of core kernel stuff so uh, we have a lot of experience with a lot of different uh, languages and go was just suggested as kind of the natural fit for that piece of the pie on the client side we're quite flexible right uh, we've been looking at doing a version that's uh, uh, smaller a smaller footprint for which we we'll probably just use c uh, but for the server uh, really go was like a very obvious choice for us so it was quite an easy choice to make actually Previously, you mentioned quite a few things, so maybe we should just rewind a little bit and kind of just cover the details of like what your application is composed of, because you mentioned you have a server and you have a client. Now, is the client the binary that your end customer would install on their server? Yes, exactly. So to be clear, typically uh, the client is actually deploying one of our containers or a VM image or something like that. But what's really the, the real function of that is to run this thin client of ours and that client's job is to uh, remain in constant communication with our server in order for us to control that instance container or you know vm whatever it might be um, so the client basically just accepts instructions from the server uh, at, and has the requirements of being extremely low latency very scalable uh, and um, kind of very lightweight i guess and then the reason for the server to exist is for us to obviously know uh, what clients are connected and to be able to deploy configurations, issue commands, collect statistics, send jobs to the, the clients, etc. So there's a client-server infrastructure, and then there's the what we would call the cloud, the front end to the users, which communicates with the server in order to tell what clients to do, uh, what jobs. Right. So that cloud front end, that is what end users would connect to just like a regular website, and that's how they configure their load balancer, right? Exactly right, yeah. And that's written in, uh, in primarily PHP. Uh, is that just PHP's standard library, or are you using some type of framework for that, or no? Yeah, uh, so we use Laravel. Well, we use large parts of Laravel. Uh, one of the nice things about it is that it's kind of flexible with you know being able to use uh, some of your own uh, stuff as well. But yeah, it's, it's PHP with uh, the Laravel framework. Nice. And was that just based on what your developers knew how to use beforehand? Um, when we were looking at using a framework, there was never much question. We knew we would use Laravel if we did use a framework because, you know, this is a question that's come up within our business and our kind of circle many times before. What frameworks do we like? What ones don't we like, etc. Uh, and Laravel ticks a lot of the boxes we want. The bigger question was more if we were going to use a framework at all. Uh, you know, there were a lot of concerns from the team like, well, this thing is this large uh, project it has a very long lifespan you know there were justifications for doing things ourselves like we don't want to necessarily have to do things through ORM and a framework and stuff like that but one of the nice things for me personally about Laravel is that it's it, it, it doesn't really force you to use the Laravel components when it doesn't fit right uh, so ultimately we made the decision to use the framework in order to kind of uh, keep our development pace up uh, and then once we had made that decision, Laravel was the obvious choice for us. Right. So I do not have very much experience with Laravel. Are there features of that framework that just fit nicely with the type of web UI that you're building? Yeah. Um, look, you can do anything in any framework, really, right? I think it's about the fit of the team uh, is probably more the truth uh, because, you know, you can do anything. But La Laravel is uh, kind of, I guess, I would consider it to be a more modern framework. 
uh, and it has a lot of the similar kind of design principles as we have within our system. Uh, and a lot of thought has gone into um, how one might scale such a platform out and things like that. Uh, and it's very flexible, you know, it's not like one size fits all. It's, it's quite easy to customize, um, which was important for us. So yeah, I mean, it's gaining a lot of popularity. Uh, it is certainly one of the newer ones, but um, it seems to be quite well regarded in the PHP community, I would say. Yeah, I know there's that one website. What is it? Like Laracasts or something like that? There's just like a million screencast videos on learning Laravel. Exactly. And that's also a big concern. You know, like uh, we we have this business where no one we hire ever knows what we do, right? Because we're doing things that people are not doing and, and you know, in a lot of different combinations and stuff like that. So we also have to think like, well, how easy is it to to upskill on things or to get resources for things or, you know, stuff like that. And they have done a great job of kind of building this community around it, you know, with documentation and screencasts and forums and stuff. Although I think probably you could say the same for any framework, I guess. But yeah, I, I like the Laravel ecosystem. Yeah. So is that application now, the web front end to drive the configuration for the load balancer, is it a monolithic application, like one big Laravel app or something else? No, it's quite spread out. Um, so it, the entire thing runs inside of Kubernetes. Uh, and so we have, you know, obviously your traditional web kind of front-end side that you expect. Uh, and then we have stuff like, uh, you know, the server communication, like how you can, you know, the server scale out, obviously, and all of that sort of stuff. But uh, interestingly, we actually don't run things like jobs and that inside that environment. So like our job servers are actually serverless. So they're running on Lambda. Um, so we run jobs basically almost instantly. We just change the scale up or scale down um, because we've switched all that stuff to be serverless. Um, so it's quite it's quite broken up actually. I suppose you would say that because uh, the the user experience side really all you're doing is ultimately any button click, any action you take is really just resulting in a job, uh, which is then being uh, run uh, on Lambda. So you mentioned jobs and it being broken up, running Kubernetes on the back end and AWS. Are there other components of your tech stack that you'd like to go over? Like, are you using, well, you're using Docker because it's in Kubernetes, but like, just a question for you, are you also using Docker in development or no? Yeah, yeah. Um, we are quite heavily, actually. Uh, so we have, um, so we use uh, basically Vagrant for all of our development work. Uh, and then we have, you know, almost exact copies of what's running in production uh, that people can run locally via various containers or things like that. So they can run their own server, they can fake their own clients because, you know, when you're working on the web front end, you also have to then ultimately have it speak to a server, which ultimately deploys those configs to clients and so on. Um, so we make quite heavy use of Docker uh, in development because, you know, it allows us to easily simulate a live environment for developers. Yeah, because this seems like you know, this is not your run-of-the-mill traditional web application, you know? There's a lot of moving parts where I can definitely see a VM being kind of necessary. So what's the development experience like for that for a developer? Do they just run the VM and kind of just maybe run some program to up it all and that's it? Yeah, exactly. For the for the real like kind of core Laravel app, if you will call it that, um, you know, they can just run a Vagrant up and, and boot it up and start to work on it. However, that application will then depend on, um, you know, local databases. For example, uh, you know, it's very typical in Vagrant to bring up like a Postgres database, but we have a time series database, which needs to come down. Then you have the server, then you have fake clients. So then we just have some tooling, like a couple of scripts, which will pull down our containers, like our, our test containers that automatically connect um, uh, 
you know, one of the nice things about Vagrant is that you can like predict the IP address of all your developers' systems, you know, so you can have like interconnected things like clients and servers and stuff that are connecting all just be kind of pre-allocated IPs and then every developer has the same environment, which is like fantastic. This is the first project that I've worked on uh, where we've gone so far down the road in terms of like tooling for development. And it's been great because even like our CI CD processes, you can run them all locally because you have all the containers in order to actually test running things on clients and so on. Yeah, no, this sounds like one of those projects where if you weren't doing all of that and you didn't invest the time, then getting set up in development would be near impossible, right? It would be like like a 700 step readme file that will get out of date very fast. Exactly. And it's like it actually consumes some of our resources, you know? Like it's important to maintain that stuff as well, like uh, the environment and what features are needed and, and how developers work on it. And so like it's something that we focus on quite a lot, but it comes at a cost, right? I mean, it, it does take up resources from our team. I'm sure in your case, those are that's time well spent. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, we've got no choice really. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a time series database. Do you want to just mention what database you're using for that? Yeah, uh, at the moment uh, we are using Influx. Uh, InfluxDB. It's quite a difficult question, you know, it's something that may even be interesting to listeners. But uh, when you look at, at regular databases, you know, people say MySQL, MariaDB, uh, Postgres, you know, these like, and it, you can kind of find the strengths and weaknesses of them all. When you get into time series, it's a whole different story. Um, and it's quite hard to work out which one you should use, which one you shouldn't. They've all got pluses and minuses. So, that's why it took you know a bit of a pause to say yeah we're using influx um we are very happy with it right now and it's working well but in some of our scaling tests and stuff like that we've identified potential areas where you know it might be a challenge or this might be a challenge and like there's no clear answer and so that's that's an area we're still kind of investing a lot of experimentation and we anticipate learning even more as we kind of scale the platform out to give you an idea right right now uh the pro i mean the product's four months old it's still in alpha right now we're writing about 33,000 metrics a second. Um, so like our scale requirements are, are very large. You know, we can expect that to go up by probably a thousand in the next year. Wow. Yeah. 33,000 a second is, is no joke. I'm not going to bust out the calculator and do the math, but it's like, that is like millions upon millions, probably a day, I guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because the thing is we have the central, the central cloud platform, but it's also actually the central repository for all information. So, you know, if you've got a hundred ADCs deployed, uh, we're taking metrics from all of those ADCs all the time and storing them centrally. Um, and that's per client, you know? Um, so yeah, the numbers get very big, very fast. And so we have these like, interesting challenges like even having to use a time series database uh there are a lot of companies and web apps that could just store reporting data in sql uh, and be fine and i would recommend that if they can <laughs> you know but uh at, at our scale that's obviously not really an option yeah so i have some projects where i'm just using postgres and it's recording maybe dozens of events a second which is a much different scale than tens of thousands Exactly. And I mean, even, you know, with Postgres, you could probably do tens of thousands. Um, but uh, like I say, you know, we're in alpha, right? I mean, like if you add a thousand times that, then all of a sudden you're talking about millions of events a second. And then you've got a real unique database scaling problem that I, I, I believe only time series databases are an option to solve, you know? Right. Now, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here, but since we're talking about like so many requests per second, alpha software and like a load balancer, I mean, this is a load balancer that would be 
basically the entry point to your application if you were hosting this on your own infrastructure, right? Exactly, yeah. So it, it's the kind of single source uh, for all of your clients to connect to, and it does all of the communication to your, let's say, web servers. It's obviously not exclusively web servers, but primarily it is. So it sits in between client communication and the web servers. Right. And now let's just say that you know, you're scaling up, months go by, things are getting popular and awesome, and you have a little bit of growing pains. Would those growing pains affect your end users who are using that load balancer or no? No. Uh, so by design, you, you know, one of the interesting things is when you run a web app, you've got to think to yourself, okay, well, what kind of uptime do I want to have? Um, how many nines should I put on this this application, right? Um, and you never put 100% because it's a it's a web application, right? I mean, you, you're hosting it centrally and, and you're bound to have to do something. Uh, so by design, uh, we have separated the two kind of concerns, right? So the, the clients that I spoke about, which are these actual ADCs, can run uh, with the cloud being offline, should it need to be. Uh, obviously, that's not our design, you know, and the intention is that everything stays online as much as possible. And so we've put a lot of effort into um, how we build that environment and, and, you know, which clouds we're in and all that kind of stuff. But should the worst case kind of happen and the site goes down, uh, then, the you know, the load balancers will continue to function fine. Nice. Yeah, no, that is definitely a big win because, yeah, uptime is important. And knowing that it's decoupled from your infrastructure is is really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really have a choice exactly. Uh, you know, we can't... Uh, the, the thing about the load balances is they have to have 100% uptime, right? They're, they very importantly cannot go down. Um, and that's why they will obviously always be redundant and so on. So, like, we can't have them go down because of maintenance or something like that. Can you give, like, the TLDR and, like, how your load balancer is different than what you might get on AWS or GCP or another platform? Yeah, yeah, absolutely I can. So, um, you know, cloud load balances are basically saying... Um, what, where should I accept traffic and where should I send it, right? And they can get a little bit smarter than that. When they do get smarter than that, they often start to get expensive though. Um, but generally speaking, they're like kind of a commodity option. Whereas what we provide is, is what the market will sometimes call an ADC. Uh, but really it's looking at four primary pieces. The first is load balancing, so availability. Uh, the second is security, right? So it's got a web application firewall, so it's protecting you against Denial of service attacks, SQL injection, you know, cross-site scripting, all that kind of stuff. You can do geofencing, you know, all the stuff you imagine from that. Um, the web acceleration, so it will cache uh, content from your servers. It can serve stale content if your servers go down. It can rewrite the pages to minify content, all that kind of stuff. And then the big thing, which is becoming much more popular recently, is observability. So, you know. Uh, which page is responding the slowest and what's the latency like on this and is there an anomaly has something changed are there more failed logins from a specific country like all you know all that kind of stuff so load balancing is is one piece of it but like that's a very small piece if that makes sense right so in your case you're you're much more than just like a traditional elb on aws like you're just adding all sorts of monitoring and alerts and other stuff like based on what the load balancer is gives back to your server as information, right? Exactly. So there's, it's, and then the second piece, what's, what's also become quite interesting, and this is like less of a, less about us and, and more about just like the state of kind of, I guess, hosting, and it's something that we've had to do ourselves, is that more and more companies are having to go to multi-cloud um, deployments, right? So, you know, you might, we might be hosting an AWS, like take us, for example, we're in AWS and DigitalOcean. 
Um, and so we are hosting two different cloud providers in two different locations in the world uh, for exactly this reason, if something was to go wrong, right? Um, and when you get to that point, it becomes very difficult to rely upon cloud-specific proprietary um, tech, you know, like ELB or, uh, you know, uh, ALB for, for your WAF requirements or something like that. So, you know, people often want in those environments something that is like, can be the same, like a mirror in all of your environments. So with Nova, for example, you could deploy an ADC that has the exact same config into Amazon and Azure and GCP, uh, and, you know, and then you know all those environments are the same and you're getting the same reports, right? Um, so like that's a big trend with high availability as being in multiple locations. And uh, especially if you want to get on premise and stuff like that, you know, it becomes very important. Yeah, for sure. Now you mentioned AWS and, and DigitalOcean. So are you running basically like a replication of your service in those two providers? Yeah, exactly. So we we run active in both. Um, and it depends, you know, certain workloads, like I said, for example, we make use of, uh, right now we are making use of, of some cloud specific provider stuff, like we use AWS for all jobs. Um, so that's not entirely true. So they will be in two different AWS locations. Um, but like we have our databases, um, the time series information, uh, a, the Nova client server communication stuff in both clouds at the same time. Yeah. Oh, wow. So. I mean, I don't know if you're open to really talking about this, but like what type of number of servers are you running on both of those clouds? It's not that high because we, well, it's probably higher than it could be. So we tend towards um, using more servers that cost less. So we'd rather have, you know, we're in the load balancing game, right? <laughs> we'd rather have 10 uh, $20 servers than, than two $500 servers. Um, and so we have quite a few, but... Uh, probably in DigitalOcean. So we have a very big Kubernetes cluster in DigitalOcean because we use it for testing. If I exclude that, probably we've got 40, uh, 40 individual droplets, including our Kubernetes cluster. It's probably like 140. Um, but that's, that's for testing, right? Like we have to scale up a million clients in order to connect our platform to, to load test it. So that's like almost separate. Uh, and in AWS, I think it's about... 15 to 20. Okay. And now as for these servers spec wise, or you mentioned like a $20 a month DO droplet, is that kind of what you're running or do you go a little bit more? Yeah, literally that is what we're running. We're even using, uh, for our load balances, for the Nova load balances that we deploy, so we use our, you know, we eat our own meals. <laughs> we use our own load balances in front of our services. Those are $5 droplets. And now what distro are you running on those servers? For us, if we can, uh, we basically will always use Ubuntu. Um, it's just familiar to us. It's easy to use, easy to manage and secure. Um, I guess we've just got a lot of experience with it internally. So on anything where we can control it, it's Ubuntu. Right. Is that, uh, what is it, 1804, the latest LTS? Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, we've got one or two uh, that are running 19. Um, but yeah, mostly it will just be whatever LTS version there is. And then on the uh, AWS side of things, you know, you mentioned a couple servers there as well. Are those, like, what classification are those? Yeah, I think they're they're like uh, what's the name of them? I mean, they're like between forty and sixty dollars a month generally per server is the ones that we spec. Okay. Um, it really like is I'm sure it's with most workloads, but especially with our workloads, um, more cores does not scale well uh, in cloud environments. 
So like a two core or a four core instance uh, for us performs very well. Uh, and then eight cores and 16 cores and 32 does not, you know, that you don't get the same scale, right? Uh, and the way cloud costing works, like is if your system is distributed like ours is, for example, we run everything in Kubernetes, everything's behind load balances, like, you know, it doesn't matter if something's two servers or 10 servers, um, you get far more bang for your buck um, by running 10 four cores than one 40 core, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then also you're, you know, you're resilient against failures. I mean, so it's just like, it's naturally kind of this like self-sufficient system. Yeah, no, that was cool how you mentioned before how to run your own infrastructure, like you're using your own tool as, you know, the load balancer just to manage your own stuff. Exactly. I mean, it provides us, so like, that's where, you, you know, I don't want to get too feature specific on our stuff, but that's where you start to see like a lot of the benefit of using something that's third party. Like, so when we do deployments, for example, it automatically handles like blue green deployments for us and, and takes servers out that don't make it back up and, you know, all of that stuff. So really to be honest, it helps a lot with our like availability during deployments and stuff. Right. Now, speaking of these servers, you know, you have a whole bunch on DigitalOcean, a couple on AWS. What do you use to set up and provision those servers? So uh, most of our servers are uh, one piece of a Kubernetes cluster. So um, we're mostly just managing it with that, right? They, they have no real individual value. Um, as far as an instance goes, uh, like in, in DigitalOcean, I think probably 80% of our service or they manage Kubernetes. Um, and uh, the, the rest of them are just kind of template driven or tooling that we've got internally. We don't use any like, uh, you know, large deployment stuff like Ansible or Puppet or anything. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense if we're using a, a Kubernetes cluster. So how is that working out, by the way, with having Kubernetes run all the stuff? Um, good. Uh, <laughs> it's uh it, it works great and but it requires a different mindset like so we try not to have any kind of permanent storage uh inside of like pods or containers that don't require them so it it, it does wind up meaning that you have to develop things differently and and stuff like that you know but one of the great things is that that lends itself to a development style that is very scalable like yeah, you know, to think of a simple example, let's say you want to run a report and it needs to create like a, a PDF that you're then going to download. Like that's not actually possible in that environment. And then if you were to scale it out, you would have problems, right? Like let's say, the, you know, you would then have to tell your load balancer to keep users on one server. And if that server went down, the report would be gone. Like whereas with us, we will have to say, okay, well, we're going to have to send that to some kind of shared storage place because it needs to be shared amongst all the containers. So it means your development has to be somewhat different, but it forces you to do it in a way that will then be easy to scale if that makes sense yeah absolutely and i can't agree more with that right because a lot of people they think it's like well oh i need to scale let me just hit the kubernetes button and then it's like rainbows and everything works nicely <laughs> yeah like we like it's very like my experience you know is very unfair because like at snapped we have uh software we have things like our shop for example is not running in kubernetes right it's running in a, in a monolithic type environment so like when we talk about Nova, it's like, oh yeah, you know, there's rainbows and sparkles everywhere. But like, it's because we started developing it on these platforms. We never had to migrate it to them. And I think that's much more challenging, you know? Yeah, no, I have some clients where it's like they want to move to Kubernetes and they haven't really built their application in a way that works with that. So 
yeah, it's a huge undertaking at the dev side of things. Like just like what you said, like well, you need to upload a file. Suddenly, like you know, that needs to go to S3, not on the local box. Or what about like you know, session state? Like you can't just keep that in like a Laravel web process. You know, it needs to be somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And and it, but you know, it, the the funny thing is like we we see a lot of people. You know, when we when we're like selling our product, people will say like, well, you know, what's the story with Kubernetes? Like, how's your integration there? And like, fortunately for us, it's obviously good, but um, most of their workload actually isn't really well suited to Kubernetes or cloud native in general. Like, I, I don't think that cloud native is like a destination. I just think it's like it's a spectrum, right? There are some workloads that work really well in Kubernetes. There are some that work well in, in serverless environments and there are some that work well on hardware and there's some that work well in VMs. And like, you know, that we try to account for that. Like, so we're trying to say, whatever your platform is, like we'll, we'll try and support that because I, I really don't think like everyone should just say, oh yeah, just move everything we've got, stick it in Kubernetes. Right, now speaking of that, does that mean your load balancer service would work for people who are not using Kubernetes? Like if they just have like a digital ocean droplet? Yeah, absolutely. That's the default actually, um, because a lot of the time it's easier for them because we create and maintain a droplet. So if anything happens, we just recreate it, right? So like um, they, they can easily just use that. We're not, in fact, most of our clients are not running entire Kubernetes environments because you know that's that's the the smaller side of their business. Um, like they will typically say have 20% of their workload in Kubernetes and need a solution there, but the other 80% is still traditional from monolithic to microservice to whatever. It's not necessarily cloud native. So do you want to just walk us through a little bit then? How would that work? Like let's say I'm a regular web developer. I have two DigitalOcean servers, you know, separate servers, and I want to load balance them now. Let's say I have some web project running on both of them. Like, how would your service let me do that? Yeah, so uh, like DigitalOcean is a good example. Let me be clear and say it doesn't have to be a cloud provider, but it's like, you know, it can be easier if it's a cloud provider. So let's use DigitalOcean as an example. When you sign up, you you can um, put in your DigitalOcean API credentials. So you just generate a token for it, and then we can launch droplets on your account. Uh, and then we can also look and see what systems you've got running. So you can then say, okay, I want to launch a droplet. You can choose the $5 one, for example, like especially... You know, if you've got two servers, that will be more than enough. Uh, and so you'll tell Nova to launch to provision a new Nova um, node in your account. It will launch a droplet for you, uh, and then that will connect back, and you can then configure an ADC there. And in your example, you know, it will say, uh, "We see you've got two web servers. Would you like to send the traffic there?" And, and you just say yes, and it will kind of maintain all of that for you and pick the get their IPs and everything all automatically. So it's really easy with a cloud account. And now all the difficult stuff about dealing with a load balancer, like doing rolling restarts and, you know, only serving traffic for the one that's up, is that all completely handled by your service? Yeah, it's all automated. So uh, you can get into the nuts and bolts of it and configure like how we do health checks and what we consider is down versus up and, you know, all of that stuff. Because like by default, for example, we consider any 500 status code to be a down server. And so, you know, you can tweak that. But yeah, by default, it will just handle all of that. And it actually monitors replies. So like you, you don't even have to like mark a site as down. Like for us, for example, uh, when we do an update, the servers that are updating, like when we push on new code, the servers that are, are receiving the new code will generate a 50, I think a 501, I don't know what status code, 500 status code, HTTP, which Nova actually intercepts and then says, oh, this server's down, let me shift this user over to another no, uh, another web server that's still online. So like it, it just handles um, like blue-green deployments for us automatically, basically. Huh, that's super interesting because yeah, load balancing is so hard and using Kubernetes for a smaller scale site like that 
might not be, I don't want to say it's not the right move, but it's it's pretty complicated to set up. Well, for, for businesses, it's hard. I mean, you know, and it's like... 80% of workloads in enterprise are still running on VMware, right? I mean, in, in, on-premise or in racks or in data centers and things like that. And even if you do have a workload in Kubernetes, you still need to be able to deploy ADCs and load balancers in your VMware environment. So, you know, it's all the same. Right. So before we move on a little bit and talking a little bit more about how you deploy your own things, I just wanted to ask one more question. Like, what would that deploy process look like for an end user who has your load balancer in front of two DO servers? And it's like, let's say they push a new version of their code base, right, to update something. How does your load balancer ensure that that new code gets onto both servers? So they, they will push directly to their servers, right? And if they sent the code to both servers, like let's say they, they run a script which takes the site down, so everyone gets an error message. And then after they've deployed, everyone gets a, you know, everything's okay message. If they deploy to both of their servers at the same time, then we'll have nowhere to send the traffic. So you could optionally have us generate like a maintenance page, for example, saying like, you know, everything is down, like, because you can customize your error pages, like, please try again in 60 seconds or something. But in an ideal environment, what they would do is deploy to the one server and, and we'll pick up that that one server has gone down and move everyone over to the other server. Then when it comes back up, we'll shift the load back so that it's 50-50. Then they deploy to the other one uh, and then we move everyone off that one and then move them back when they're done. So as long as they don't like wipe out 100% of their service, you know, so like in our example, uh, we'll deploy just to 50% and then 50%. But if we want to be safe, we can deploy to 10 and 20 then 30, you know, however we want to do. Right. That makes sense. So it is kind of like a rolling restart, but I guess, I don't know how you would classify that more of like a manual rolling restart. Yeah, exactly. So when you deploy, you just deploy to two different groups, you know. Uh, that's obviously optional. I mean, they can just deploy to both. And if it takes 30 seconds, the load balancer can just generate a message saying, you know, please try again in 30 seconds or something. But if they don't want any downtime, then they can do that. That's like your automated kind of manual um, approach, uh, you know, where you're you're saying let the load balancer automatically pick up my manual deployments. But of course, like for bigger enterprises, what they'll do is like send an API request to Nova to say, um, drain these servers because I'm going to do a test deployment to them and then tell us to bring the traffic back to them or like put 10% of the traffic on this new server so that I can test if it's working and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where some people, they get lost up in like the Kubernetes buzzword or whatever, where, and maybe it is possible for this to all happen, but it's like this one magic bullet, you know, where it manages all of that automatically. You don't need to worry about you know, breaking up your deploy. Yeah, well, so, I mean, exactly. Like, that's the thing, you know, you need, like, so with Kubernetes, for example, we can point to, you know, uh, uh, like a service behind us that's that's made up of a bunch of containers or a bunch of pods. Um, and, you know, we'll point, we'll send traffic to any that are online. So if your deployment is, is set up in such a way that, you know, once you deploy, new containers come up when old containers go down, like, we'll pick that up. But... You know, you can't just have, like, if you've got a user on speaking to a specific container in your Kubernetes environment, and they're halfway through a download, and that container disappears, that user is going to get disconnected, right? And have to start again. Like, so that's, you know, that's the problem. Like, if you've got a load balancer sitting in between, it can, like, buffer that connection, find another server that will send the last half of that, that file, if it's available, and, and try to, you know, maintain this kind of communication. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of value in that. So we've been talking a little bit about deployment from maybe your customer's perspective, but do you kind of want to go into your workflow for develop or deploying a new version of your application? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, ours is actually quite simple. We've tried to keep it simple. You know, every time we make anything that's 
anytime we move it up like to becoming less simple we we try to justify it you know to try and and have deployment be as simple as possible mostly what happens is that uh to our, our web servers the front ends uh code comes uh, you know once code is in uh in our in git uh you know once we've merged it we will then manually trigger a deploy so we control our deploys um, that's just by choice right now. Uh, and we'll deploy to some amount of the servers. Once they're online, deploy to the rest of them. Uh, or we could deploy to the whole lot if need be, but we don't, you know, we obviously don't uh, because we just don't want the site to go offline. Um, and then the more complicated part is then updating things like the job servers and stuff like that. Um, but that's, you know, we've just got scripts and kind of custom tools built to, to do that. Um, which will take place in, you know, in our deployment script when we click the button to deploy, basically. Uh, and then for the client server side, that's a bit more complicated, right? So the server runs in Kubernetes, so we will deploy a new um, version of that container uh, and then switch users over um, via the load balancer. So it will, you know, take the connections that were on the old one and move them over to the new one. Um, but it then has to check, do we need to update the clients, all that kind of stuff. Now, you mentioned that you do manual deployments, which I think is a good idea, too. I, I always like that human element of, you know, you push the red button when you're ready instead of an automated thing. But that deploy button, is that uh, like a custom script you wrote or are you using Jenkins or something else? No, so uh, we have a CI CD environment, uh, which is like a, a primarily run on Circle CI, actually. We collect all of that stuff. So, uh, like on our, on our deployment platform, it will have you know the build status and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but that that their deployment script, that job to actually go and do it, is all custom. It's stuff we've done. And now, when you're dealing with um, like secrets during that deployment process, is that just through environment variables? through CircleCI and Kubernetes, or like, how are you dealing with that? Almost exclusively environment variables. Uh, there's a bit of a headache when you get to stuff like Lambda because like certain things can't be certain sizes, like you can't store, like, you know, like um, the certificates for our API, for example, are too big. So, you, you know, you have to come up with different solutions, um, but primarily it's just environment variables, yeah. Right, so it sounds like, you know, you may have hit your head against the wall with, with those limitations. What have you did to get around that? Uh, well, there are ways. There are like storages that they have, which can store, you know, a larger number of bytes. I think it's like you get 4K and then 4 meg or something. I, I don't know the exact details, but, you know, you just have to adapt to that. But one of the challenges of that, and that's why I say we're, we're using that right now, but likely we will change to our own just kind of uh, solution is because it locks us into that cloud provider for that service, you know, which is something that by design we don't really want to do uh, for two reasons. One, we want to be flexible with where we host and, and you know, with where it might be online and so on. But secondly, we also intend to offer this as like a self-hosted solution for larger enterprises and then they're not going to have those functions. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely an important aspect if you plan to support that. Yeah, so that like, like cloud, it's, it's quite a big trend at the moment. It's like, I don't know what you would call it, almost like cloud neutral. You know, like the ability to literally lift and shift your entire platform and move it to another cloud um, is quite a big trend that we see in our enterprise clients, um, you know, from cost savings to, um, you know, just kind of security, safety, whatever it might be. Like, it's a big concern of people. So it's quite difficult to achieve. Yeah, definitely. And especially like when you're dealing with the data, right? It's always moving the data is the really hard part. It, it, exactly. And replication and keeping things in sync between two locations. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's quite a challenge. Yeah, for sure. So end to end, when you do a new code deploy on 
And we'll talk about both sides of the story, but like, let's say you're updating the Laravel app to update some component of the web UI that your customers would use. So like, what's the turnaround time from you pushing code to, to GitHub or wherever you push it to that actually being in production? Oh, it's quite short. Um, I mean, we're not at uh, like Twitter or Facebook levels where they're deploying thousands of times a day, but probably from a pull request going through, uh, it would have to go to our staging system, you know? So like it's slow because of manual processes, right? Like we'll push it to staging, do more actual user testing on, on, on the system and stuff like that. And often, you know, it can be like a reporting change, which means we need to wait a day in order to see that, you know, the midnight changed over or things like that but ultimately like if we want to if we merge something into master and we want to click deploy uh we can do it very quickly and our deployment process probably takes between five and ten seconds most of which is npm compiling things whoa that's actually really really fast especially if you're dealing with dependencies and, and things like that yeah yeah it's very quick to deploy um we can actually get it down even lower L- literally what we do right now is on our production servers we'll compile all of the assets like our javascript and all like stuff like that which is not necessary you know we could uh like push compiled stuff but uh for now it's perfectly fine for us right so that takes care of like the web front ends but now let's say you need to push a change to something running on the client side or you know, the go back end for the server side of that. How does that look or is that about the same? Uh, that's different uh, because what that actually involves is changing a container, right? Is, is updating a container. So we, we, we will push a new container, um, which we build just with our internal tooling, right? Like, so we'll get the latest versions of everything we need uh, from our repositories, which is all just on GitHub, um, compile it all, create the container and push it. Then when we want to actually deploy that, we just push it, you know, put a new container up in Kubernetes. Yeah. Now that sounds like a very cool setup. So are you going to say uh, something? I was going to say we've, uh, you know, when I say like we've got tooling and scripts and, you know, like that script, for example, is probably five lines. It's like just a shell script, you know, it's just five commands. It's like, it's, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of shell scripts. You can get a lot accomplished with very little. Yeah, exactly. Especially like what we'll often do is integrate it in some way. So, you know, like we, we might have a web um, control panel, which shows you like the build is passed. This has happened. This is who merged the PR and then a button to click go. But when you click that go button, it might just run a shell script. You know? So now, now that the application is running in production, you pushed a new deploy. Like what do you have set up for doing like error reporting and logging and metrics and things like that? So we've had to do a lot of uh, stuff ourselves. Uh, just because of how much we care about the like the performance of the platform, like latency and and you know all of that kind of stuff, and like a, an error for example with us might not be an error. It might be like that you know someone tried to run a job on a node that's actually disconnected because it went down on the client side or you know things like that. So there's a lot of kind of our our own dashboarding. Um, but for error reporting, we actually use Sentry, uh, which I'm quite a fan of. So like the web app, any Laravel stuff, etc., will go straight to Sentry. Um, and then everything's integrated with Datadog, which we use up for a lot of our kind of logging reporting. Like, so we have our own custom kind of stats D thing, which we send reporting metrics to, which then gets shipped off to, uh, to Datadog. Uh, and all that stuff messages on Slack, basically. Nice. Yeah, that seems to be a popular pipeline. Datadog, Sentry, and Slack. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, you know, there is some overlap, I guess, to be honest. But, like, it just depends what you use for what purpose. Like, we, for example, we don't have any Datadog agents on any of our servers. So, you know, they're like their traditional way of monitoring, like installing their little Python script or whatever it is and, and having it run like your CPU usage and stuff. We, we don't 
use that at all. Literally, the only thing we use them is for StatsD, where we send, you know, timings for communication with like the server process and how long pages are taking to load and how long a command took to execute and how many commands are running per second, you know, sample rates and all that stuff. That's what we use it for. So like it's really whatever you, you, you know, where you find a fit for the tool. Um, and then Sentry is like, what's nice about using third-party tools like that is like if you're using Laravel and Sentry, you just like install the the laravel uh, sentry plugin kind of and 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 you know you've got like it's working perfectly right um so there's no reason not to use like people's software when it's great yeah absolutely so are you also taking advantage of things that certain cloud providers give you like DigitalOcean alerts and stuff like that or no no not really because like because our, our clouds are almost just like they're almost like uh, fake servers you know <laughs> like because really they're just operating as part of a cluster and like so we we need to manage that cluster ourselves at least right now is the reality you know so like a given instance is just like one of 20 of the exact same instances you know and if it was to fail it doesn't really have any kind of effect on us um we we manage like the, the infrastructure within then kubernetes or whatever it is um so we don't really worry too much about their like cpu alerts and memory usage alerts and stuff like that we let the layer sitting on top of that worry about the like the health of each individual device Right. That makes sense. And also goes back to like kind of what you mentioned before where, you know, maybe I want, you know, you didn't really explicitly say this, but it would be nice if you can just switch from DO to a different provider, you know, and not be the end of the world. Well, exactly. I mean, like we, we have clients, for example, like we've got one client that spends, I think, five, five or six million dollars in cloud computing fees a month uh, and they can switch clouds multiple times a month because like they get a better price on another cloud that just move. You know, and like the reality is they're not leaving one and joining another. They're scaling up in one and scaling down in another. But that to be able to do that in a very high scale environment, like like to give you an idea, uh, like we've got clients that have got 500 load balancers deployed behind each load balancer could be 10 to 20 servers. So they might have 5000 servers in production with potentially tens of thousands of applications on them. Um, you know, so like a difference in 10 percent of cloud pricing bill might be worth like designing in this fashion where you can actually cloud hop and stuff like that, you know? Um, when you get to that kind of scale, like the way you look at an infrastructure provider is very different. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, I, I mostly operate on, on a much smaller scale, you know, low tens of servers at the most. Those are things I don't even think about that you just mentioned because spending millions of dollars a month on cloud hosting is is a whole nother level. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, you'd be surprised, you know? There's a lot of, I mean look at us, you know, we're, like I told you, we're a team, there's nine developers. I mean, obviously our company is a lot bigger than that, but there's nine developers. We've got 150 servers sitting in Kubernetes at the moment. Like it, the the change in the, the, like there's so much tooling and stuff in the DevOps world and enablement from like open source and all these kind of cloud providers and stuff nowadays that like a small team might have a pretty big set of infrastructure, um, and so like some of the, and then, you know, what you have is like in a team like ours, we don't have people that are, are experts on co-location or, you know, stuff like that. And so you really have to start thinking about that from software instead of just from IT. It used to be IT ops problem. Like, oh, the developers wrote this thing. I've just got to find a way to host it in both places. Like, I actually think today it's a developer problem, right? That's, that's the rise of DevOps, right? It's like, how can these things kind of merge to say, well, we can create the software in this way that it is cloud neutral. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And what was that one? I, I forget the stats exactly, but a couple of years ago, it was like, what was it, WhatsApp? They had such a low amount of engineers, but they were serving like 
billions of events per month or something yeah like it that. was like instagram as well right like it, it, i could be totally wrong here but i think instagram had like 11 employees and like they were so massive that their value per employee was like 120 million dollars or something you know it's like they and they had such a high amount of infrastructure that you know it's like it just just shows like how the game is changing yeah we definitely live in an interesting time now right it's like so much power like one one solo developer can run some pretty crazy stuff well but that's it's exciting though right i mean like like we could never do what we do now even five years ago i mean like like for our our test environment right like we need to see how high we can scale like so we're running a million um nova clients on that that large kubernetes cluster that i mentioned like how would we possibly launch a million servers to test something even even three years ago you know <laughs> like um and we're this like we're a relatively small team compared to like big organizations that could still like never achieve that so like the the like i don't even want to call it tooling but like that stuff has come so far that it's really enabling um small teams to do really cool stuff yeah now you mentioned testing and you know making sure things stay up like what type of plans do you have for disaster recovery, like malicious users, weird events that just happened? Like, how do you do your database backups and all that fun stuff? Yeah, so databases is mostly automated, right? I mean, so because everything of ours is redundant and also co-located, right? Like, so we have two different data centers that everything goes to. So, like, Nova is routing our traffic to both data centers, and if one fails, it will move it to the other one. But um so like we're not that worried about say a database backup like every minute so instead we'll just have database backups that happen every hour like in case you know of some unforeseen event across the entire kind of infrastructure that we have um then we just run hourly backups at the moment uh obviously the vm the like the, the the actual host of the postgres servers are all backed up as well etc um but our infrastructure basically we run in multiple locations everything is highly available so there's at least two of everything like for example the database or the load balance or, or something like that um and then we use uh gslb it's actually a component of nova but they are like other people that provide that service as well to do uh geographic routing like for dns queries that come in around the world you know so like we'll send europeans to europe and, and americans to america and if america's down then we'll send the americans to europe right so you have quite a lot of uh a lot of good stuff going on to protect against downtime of your own system yeah well uh, well yeah like i said you know we're users of our own product but th that's our business i guess is, is developing that kind of stuff so we're lucky that we have um experience in that space i guess yeah and i was going to follow that up with well you know, since you're using your own tool on your own system, it's like, well, now other people can kind of take advantage of that as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I like doing stuff like this is because like we've learned these lessons from working with our clients, you know, and like we work, I mean, like we don't need to go through the list, but, you know, we work with a lot of Fortune 500 businesses that are on the really the bleeding edge of solving a lot of these scalability things. And so that's how we've learned, like how we need to build these things. Um, and that's why like it's nice to do stuff like this because then it gets out to the community of like smaller developers that are starting stuff up and thinking you know how should we design this and how should we build it like uh that's actually why like so we have a, a free version of Nova for like uh, smaller teams like because of exactly that like it's just so difficult if you're just starting out to like follow best practices for this kind of thing and it can come like a huge technical debt if you don't like you know know how to start you mentioned some clients spending millions of dollars per month. Like, you know, I have a feeling a lot of listeners of this podcast are not in that position. So like, is this something that, you know, a regular person would use on a smaller project and still get value from it? Absolutely. I mean, you, so 
by definition, you kind of think that load balancing is, okay, I must have at least two servers, right? But that's not even the requirement because actually, like I mentioned, we do a lot of application firewalling and layer seven security and you know observability and all that stuff. So you can use it even with one. Um, but uh, from us, from a cost point of view, uh, we allow you to have up to five nodes. So a node would be a, a server or a container in a cloud uh, with any number of ADCs. You can do that for free. Uh, so there's no cost at all. So like for people that are hobbyists or got a small site, SME, stuff like that, they can just use it for free. Um, and it's also really nice because like, I think if you're like in our game, you know, DevOps and you're looking at stuff like this, like these are important technologies to know about and, and to play with. And like, it even helps developers, you know, like it's actually quite cool. Like some of the new devs that we brought on for this project, like the way they develop things has changed a lot due to the exposure to how you actually take things to production, you know, like load balancing and the concerns around that. And, you know, all of that kind of stuff is really good experience, I think, for people that are in the DevOps space. Yeah, there's really nothing that beats just real world actual experience like discovering workflows automating things how to discover yeah exactly so for all of that it's just totally free that's great and like that five node limitation is there any other limitations imposed like is it one of those like pay to win type of things where you only get like 20 percent of the features but now you have to pay for the rest no no to, to be completely honest with you, there are some limitations, but they're all entirely practical, right? So like, for example, we can only offer so much support on the free version and we can't do SLAs and stuff like that. And we also only keep your data, your reporting for seven days um, because, you know, we're actually storing that stuff for you for free. So like storing it for long is, is expensive for us, right? Um, but like functionality wise, being able to deploy that stuff, use a security thing, everything I've mentioned, you can just use all of it for free. Nice. So people can sign up for free, but then it costs money if they want to go beyond five nodes. We didn't really get a chance to talk about this yet, but how, how do you deal with payments within your application? Are you using Stripe or some other payment gateway? Yeah, we use Stripe. Um, so on our older uh, platform, our what we call our shop, which is where we sell our, our uh, traditional product called Snap One, um, we use two checkout Stripe and PayPal. Uh, but for Nova, we wound up deciding just to uh, standardize on Stripe and use only that. Ah, yeah, no, Stripe's a really good service. So have you guys upgraded to, um, what is it now, Payment Intense or whatever it's called? Yeah, Their yeah. New API? Uh, our, our billing is actually uh, like the most recent kind of thing that we've worked on on the platform. So like everything is using all their, you know, kind of new stuff. But um, like it's, it's where Stripe is really great. It's like what we actually, so we bill per month, like, our, you know, it's a, a fee per node per month. But what we really do is bill per hour. Um, so like if you run one just for five hours, you only pay for, for five hours. And if you want to do that type of billing, like where you bill in arrears at the end of the month um, for like this unknown amount, you know, that could be like less than what the client originally signed up for. Stripe is really nice for that. Hmm. Yeah, that is not something I have experience with, but that is such a common thing to do in the cloud world. Yeah, like variable billing, exactly. And it's like, you know, it's it's like people people hear that and they think like, oh, you're going to bill me more than I signed up for. But really, like what a lot of people like us are trying to deal with is billing people less, right? When You know, when you're charging, like depending on the number of things that we're running or, you know, stuff like that. It's like you need to be able to, to alter the bill at least within some like reasonable kind of range. And Stripe has done a good job of finding the middle ground between like, I think, protecting the consumer and, and, and empowering the developer, you know, because like other platforms like uh, like PayPal, for example, is very different to charge someone. Some, it's very difficult to charge something to someone that they didn't originally agree that amount to. Yeah, I forget the exact rules of Stripe, but isn't it something like as soon as you get that token to allow to make a charge, 
It could be for that amount or less, but it can't be more. Uh, it depends. You can actually request one to like have a, a larger amount or to increase and stuff like that, you know. But it's quite transparent. Like so, you, the user gets a good sense of what they're allowing here. Um, for us, because we charge by the node, and you could launch ten nodes, we have to be able to charge you more. Um, but then, you know, then we add like our uh, developer side protections. Like you can say, you know, never run more than this. Warn me if I go over that amount of money or stuff like that. Yeah, Stripe is just getting better and better, and accepting payments is getting harder and harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like having a, a provider for that makes a lot of sense. Another reason why you know working with frameworks and stuff like that often makes sense. But interestingly enough, for for billing, we had to kind of move away from Laravel systems and, and do our own because of the complexity. But like we were still able to use a lot of the the like existing classes and stuff they have. Right. So now in a semi-related uh, manner, I guess, when it comes to your service notifying users of a, you know things going wrong over email or whatever. So like what transactional email service do you use? Uh, so we use SendGrid. As to why, to be honest, uh, I've used them for the longest time and have always been happy with them. I haven't recently evaluated others. So, you know, I don't know, but I can say that SendGrid uh, has always done a good job for us. Right. Do you happen to know, like off the top of your head, like how many emails you guys send out a day or something like that? Oh, not that many. Um, probably at the moment, probably less than a thousand. Um, it, you know, we like we send users can subscribe to notifications about like alerts on their nodes and like information about the devices, like if there's a spike in traffic and stuff like that. So a lot of it is that sort of thing, um, but uh, not a huge amount, no. Okay. And then, like, one last tech question before we wrap this up, because we're almost hitting that hour mark. Um, how do you deal with SSL certificates with your setup? Like, is, does your load balancer terminate them? Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> like, another Nova plug. But um, basically, uh, Nova will provision Let's Encrypt certificates automatically. Uh, and so we just use that functionality. So it self-provisions certificates for the site. Nice. So as the end developer is setting this up, if they were to use your load balancer, they don't even need to really think about even setting up Let's Encrypt on their own. No, no. Literally, they can just say Let's Encrypt and they say yes and they accept the terms and conditions from Let's Encrypt and then you type in whatever domain names you want those two issue certificates for um, and then the node itself. So also, we don't get those certificates, importantly. They reside on the node, right? We just have the configuration that you want those certificates, but we don't get the keys and stuff like that. Um, and the node is in your infrastructure. So then it will automatically just get the Let's Encrypt certificates and uh, renew them and keep them all up to date and all that kind of stuff. Right. So what is that one uh, saying, right? It's like push button, get bacon. Exactly. Exactly. It's like SSL, <laughs> complicated SSL certificates. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's much easier just to to have the, the low band. So provision that all for you. What can be a concern though is that, you know, typically you think of like when you use the word termination, you know, SSL termination is what we would normally call that. Um, then you think, well, then I'm sending plain text out the back of the load balancer. But you can, you know, if you're in public cloud and you worry about security, stuff like that, you can re-encrypt. So you can, right. you know, uh, have like a client certificates sort of environment where, you know, we then re-encrypt to your backends um, if need be. But it's often very nice to have it centrally on the load balancer because if you look like at vulnerabilities in, in software in the last five years, like there have been a lot in SSL uh, related things, you know, on, on web servers and stuff like that. And it's very nice to have one kind of central thing that's maintained by us, that's managed by us. Like we were the first company, first ADC company in the world to patch Heartbleed, for example. Like, 
Um, so, you know, you've got this like company that's taking care of that stuff for you and like you don't have to worry about user error. Like if you've got 50 servers, updating the certificate on all 50 servers is quite a hassle. Whereas like, you know, if you only have it in one place, it's much easier. So like, I'm a big believer in having your load balancer do your SSL as opposed to having your web service do it. Yeah, it almost goes back to what you said before about like developer patterns that you need to take into account when you're using something like Kubernetes. Like you can't just upload a file to the server, you know, directly. You have to put it somewhere else. This is sort of similar in that fashion as well exactly exactly and like it's nice to have just like responsibilities condensed you know like you know like the you know your, your container then becomes as simple as possible um and like you know the web server all of a sudden is no longer important so if you wind up serving some functions from like a serverless environment it doesn't matter and you know because you've got that stuff contained in the load balancer then and so it just makes for better design i think for people that are looking to ultimately scale stuff out yep so on that note do you have any best tips and, and lessons learned for anyone who might be developing some type of similar application as you, or maybe at least like any type of Laravel web app? Oh, wow. I mean, so I, I do, um, but l let me say like our, our project is a big one, right? Um, like this is a, a very large scale system and it's something that is going to be worked on and run for many years and so perhaps my tips are somewhat different but you know there are a lot of startups i think that are creating that type of thing with the vision of having that type of thing and so one of the the best decisions we made actually interestingly was uh to develop this thing we call our code contract which is like eight bullet points um of how we have to write code you know, in order to ensure that it's maintainable, that it's secure, that it's clear, that it's scalable, things like this. Um, and believe it or not, you can do all of that with eight bullet points <laughs> if you, you know, if you're very specific about them. Uh, and every pull request we put through is evaluated against this contract. And uh, pull requests <laughs> are rejected if they don't pass. And, you know, we started that on day one. And that's really led us, like, sometimes it's meant that developing a certain feature took a little bit longer, but not a lot longer. And it's meant that we wound up in this environment where, you know, we have a system that meets these criteria that, you know, are otherwise very hard to meet. Right. That almost sounds like instead of uh, like Heroku's 12-factor application, you have like an eight-factor application? Yeah. Or is that something different? Uh, sort of, sort of. It's it's more like, it's like eight instructions if you don't want to get an angry meme on your pull request. <laughs> no, but right. it's, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's very specific things. Like we're, we're very careful about uh, when we, uh, you know, through an event, for example, and um, how uh, something, the difference between something that writes to the system versus something that reads from a system. And, you know, we had to design stuff in a very specific way there as well, because we also obviously are like a security company. Um, but it's it's kind of like eight core concepts, and it doesn't have to be eight, you know, and, and another company wouldn't use our eight. The idea is sitting down and saying, what is the purpose of the system? So like for us, we said it has to be extremely scalable. It's going to be worked on for many years. Um, it has to be very secure, etc. So like worked on for many years, for example, changes the way um, you name functions. You know, if someone else is going to come in in three years time and look at something or the way, it, you know, it, it really like we and we just try to live by that contract. And, and it's like it served us really well, to be honest. And it wasn't my idea. It was, came from our development team, but it was a great idea. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great idea. Also, like on a semi-related note, like I'm a huge fan of, of just having a checklist that you can go through. Like it just helps so much. Exactly. And it's like, it really helps. And the other thing is, you know, pull requests can be quite funny. You know, you, you have difference of opinions often on certain things and stuff like that. But with this, it's like, this is, you will often see this violates a code contract on a pull request. 
like on a piece of code, you know, and then there's no discussion. People don't debate it. They're like, oh yeah, good point, good point. And it gets fixed, you know. It's like this kind of independent third party that's not disagreeing with your code, but rather just enforcing our rules. Um, and it works well. Given that your app has been in development for a little bit, like, did you make any mistakes early on that you had to correct later or anything like that? Um, oh, I don't want to say no, because I mean, like we definitely have. <laughs> um, I just, I, I can't really think of any large scale things, you know. Um, time, time series databases were difficult. You know, we, we, we struggled to choose one and struggled to, to get all of the kind of features we wanted. So it took longer than it should have. Um, but otherwise, no, not really. I think we're, we're pretty happy with where we are uh, so far in the journey. But, you know, like I say, we're, we're st- we are still early in our journey of development on this app. Yeah, we'll have to set another date for a year from now and see what happens. Yeah, in a year. And I'm like, oh, Kubernetes and serverless was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll see. Right. So, Dave, I mean, thanks so much for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was great having you on the show. Thank you for having me on. It's been great to chat. Uh, before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profiles, things like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Please. Uh, so we're, our business is called Snapped. Um, snap.net is where you can find us. That's our, uh, primarily the landing page for our traditional software solution, our ADC, which um, we haven't spoken about much. Nova is nova-adc.com. Um, that's probably more useful because that's where people can just play with it for free and, and, and test it and whatever. But our business is called Snapped. So, you know, we're, we're on Twitter, Facebook, our website, whatever you want. Okay, so I'll drop a couple of links to that in the show notes. Awesome, thank you. And thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.